from GreenBiz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower, social distancing at home in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, how the pandemic is affecting corporate sustainability professionals' jobs, five things corporate leaders can do right now, digging into ag biotech, and a new wave of plastics made from algae. It's a sea change this week on 350. It's April 3rd, 2020. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me from Midland Park, New Jersey, way more than six feet away, is Green Biz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. (laughs) Hi. Hi, Joel. Greetings. Keeping our distance. That's just like they told us to. So that's good. Um, Yeah. Uh, How's your week? Doing pretty well. We, you know, we're my husband, as I've mentioned, is is a little bit hard, has a little bit harder time. I'm a reader, so I've got, I've done a lot of reading. I, I saw a, an early version of the movie Emma. You know, I'm starting to find interesting, creative things to do with my time. Lots of recipes, um, but you know, I I uh, am not liking the thought, the idea that we're going to be locked down maybe for like another month or so. So, but what about you? You know, I'm sort of uh, getting into the groove here. I'm settling in. I'm uh, learning how to live in this uh, new environment. I mean, look, uh, we're, we're all we're both pretty lucky. We have nice homes and partners, and 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 you know, gardens and all kinds of things that uh, we get to take advantage of. And we're not in the thick of it. It's just a a matter of staying away from the thick of it so that we don't contribute or or. Uh, catch anything ourselves. So it's, um, you know, it's okay. Um, I, I'm trying to get used to the fact that this is what April is going to look like. Um, but you know, we're three days into April and so far so good. Yeah. And I have gotten lots of nice walks in and pictures of the beautiful spring here in Midland Park. So what else is on your mind this week? Oh, that's it. I think let's get right into the news of the past week. In the Week in Review. Well, let's start with the word plastics, specifically bioplastics, very specifically algae-based bioplastics. That's the topic of a piece by Lauren Phipps, our senior analyst, Circular Economy, did this week on, uh, on the growing number of companies that are growing plastic uh, made from seaweed. Yeah, um, there's a lot of companies, you know, used to talk about algae as a biofuel source. You know, there were a lot of algae startups in, in the, the clean tech days, people trying to create alternative fuels. And now the focus has been on how do you use this, this abundant stuff, this seaweed and kelp and, and the good old plain old algae as a source of materials. And there's a couple of really great examples that, that our friend Lauren Phipps talks about in her article. Uh, one is Lollyware. They, they got a lot of attention for um, their, their straws. Um, there's, a, there's a company that I wrote about uh, called Oho. 
Um, and they, they, they made the, um, the alternatives to water sachets. I love that word. Um, uh, sort of basically an edible way of consuming water. You just eat the water, <laughs> which is counterintuitive, but, um, wait, you eat the water, you eat the water. You can eat the whole little packet. It's, um, it's like oh, a, I see. a bite-sized, um, uh, sip of water, if you will. And, uh, it, they, they used it, for example, at the London marathon last year and tested it. I'm sure that that won't be the, the, you know, the, the, the way it necessarily finds its way into your, your home or my home in the future, but it's, it's a, it's a way of, of testing. Well, well how, 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 how yeah. would it be used? I don't understand what, what else would you do with it? The marathon Basically, makes sense because you need portable hydration in a second, you know, mm -hmm. but what else? Well, so I'm not sure about, but the, that particular, um, company but if you look at a company called evoware right so they they do seaweed based cups and wraps and, and bags if you think about all the little snacks that you have um that that people today buy in you know snack sizes right so it's a it's a single meal you take it on the go as you were mentioning before like the with the water um if they're biodegradable i'm not suggesting that you toss them on the ground but but if they fly out of your bag or if they fly out of the boat that you're in um, and land in the water, they will biodegrade um, instead of being like plastics. You know, I mean, I nothing. I, I don't know about you. I, I, in in the last few weeks, have you noticed how much um, plastic is in the parking lots of grocery stores and and other places that people are like discarding their gloves? Yeah. Um, you know, that's just it. Just makes me so angry. But the um, the point is, um, for some edible substances, um, could you could you put food into some of these things, and and over time they biodegrade? Um, you know, that's the food applications. There there's also applications potentially with with um, fashion, right? So this company Algix, uh, they make something called Bloom, and it is an algae blended ethylene vinyl acetate material. So basically, something it's a foam that um, some companies are starting to use in shoes. Uh, Tom's, Adidas, Merrill, um, those are all brands that are starting to use this, this uh, material that's made from algae in their shoes. So there's a lot of different uses. I, I, the, the food and fashion are the ones that, I, that I've seen personally um, the most. I don't know about, have you seen any examples? I mean, I've seen little samples of things, but uh, they're, they're nothing that was in production at scale uh, at any kind of price point that, uh, uh, let's say, uh, Frito-Lay or anyone who makes snacks or other kinds of uh, packaging would, would, would want to use or could afford to use. Um, but I understand that these things often take time. Definitely not. Yeah, for sure. That this is where I guess we're in the pilotitis <laughs> phase of this of this particular trend. But it it's it is a wonderful uh, example of the innovations that are starting to come into play for the circular economy. And by the way, you were looking for you know what's the term for these little packages, snack size, whatever. I think technically the official word is fun size. That's how they market them, at least. <laughs> So, fun. Uh, yeah, and speaking of because it's fun to get them open. <laughs> and, and speaking of that, I, I love this acronym for this consortium for marine algal industrialization, which of course is magic. So that's that's a, a good way to talk, think about um, turning algae into plastics. 
But now let's turn to corporate America and this piece that Suzanne Shelton wrote. Uh, She's president and CEO of the Shelton Group down in Knoxville, Tennessee, um, saying that this is corporate America's time to shine. This moment with the pandemic and the economic meltdown, I think we're officially now in a recession, so we can call it that. Um, And this is... uh, sort of one of the gifts, as she calls it, of COVID-19 is that we get to see, as she says, fully, brutally, nakedly, just how unsustainable our current system is. And of course, the the other side of that is that that creates an opportunity for uh, business leaders to step in. And she offers five things that business leaders can do, including simply reimagining the way we work, the way we collaborate and create which frankly I think is happening anyway, just by those of us who are, all of us who are now working at home and having to figure out how do we do our jobs for those of us who are lucky to still have one from uh, from our uh, home offices, bedrooms, living rooms, wherever. Uh, and I think that's leading us already to reimagine the way we work, collaborate, and create. Uh, I don't know about you, but my new BFF uh, during this is Zoom. Uh, I didn't use Zoom very often. I was, you know, invited to a few Zoom meetings. I certainly did those. But I'm on three, four, five, six Zoom calls a day, every day now. I'm surprised that we're not doing this by Zoom, but we, maybe we will at some point create mm-hmm. the video version of this podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's just a starter. What, what did you like in this piece? Well, I've done Zooms, by the way, for rehearsals with my quartet, which is a whole nother ball of wax. (laughs) I don't recommend trying to sing on it. But there were two things that really struck me. Um, You know, this whole piece was terrific. Um, I I really loved that Suzanne reached out with this. And one of the things that that really stuck with me was the the sort of um, urgency that she, the urgent need, if you will, to change her habits, right? So so we talk about what we're doing right now, but she suggests using this as a, as a time to really commit to the zero, you know, the zero impact model, right? So we're all pretty much stopped. I mean, the collective, <laughs> the collective world has um, paused business. There, there's things, certain things going on, certain activities, but this is a really great time to change how we do things. So change Maybe that Zoom call is going to become a new way of having meetings. Maybe that um, new way of handling uh, the waste in a kitchen will be what you do in the future. But really take the time to examine the habits of your physical operations and, and learn how to think about them in a different way. So, you know, that was one thing that she was encouraging that I really, that kind of really stuck with me. I've, I've definitely been thinking about it in my personal life and I think as, as companies have come out of the, the the sort of shock of the first 10 days or so of this and now are really focusing on the future. I think that will be something to to channel. The other thing that I that I appreciated a lot um, and and this was very controversial um, last week when when the aid was being debated in the Congress. Um, she suggests advocating for legislation that will bake sustainability into the fabric of our society and systems. So the reference I was just making, of course, was the, the push to include when, when we did the bailout of the aviation industry to include consideration for um, carbon emissions reductions over time. So certain elements, the, the Democratic 
uh, House was was suggesting that that should be tied to the bailout, that that should be a condition of the bailout. And of course, it didn't pass um, for various reasons. It was not ultimately included. But, you know, and it was very controversial. Some people were just appalled and shocked that we would be trying to tie, you know, some some kind of systemic change to this. But, you know, she argues that it's exactly right time. Um, you know, we're, we're passing legislation that has to do with the short term and long term future. And we should be having this conversation and we, we're seeing the impact. And this is exactly the right time. Yeah, I took away one other thing from here that uh, I love and I think is really so apropos right now is about relying on the fringe for insight. And she refers to uh, someone named Daniel Ford, who wrote a piece that she links to. Uh, the piece is called uh, Why COVID-19 is the Tipping Point for Sustainability. And, and, and she refers to the fringe, and he does as well, uh, that these are ideas that, that might be considered on the fringe or crazy today, but could become mainstream tomorrow. I mean, geez, we're, we're certainly seeing a lot of those kinds of things that uh, who'd have thunk that we would be doing a, B, and C, and, and lots of things. We've talked about some of that on this podcast, and I think everybody's living that every day right now. Um, but you know, those are the looking at those ideas, those so-called crazy ideas that could be mainstream. Is it provides insight into into where we're going, um, and I think there's a there's something there. I think we should explore that even more. So uh, I recommend this piece. I think this is a great sort of inspiring piece to think about where we are in this moment. Yeah. And, and the, the last piece I wanted to bring up is your piece from Ooh. this week, Joel. Yeah. And, and I already kind of referenced it with, with a comment I made a moment ago, but this is exactly the time to be talking about climate change. Yeah. So again, we have this opportunity to rethink how we do things. And so Joel, what spurred this uh, this essay, this uh, rant in this week's in this week's uh, column? Yeah, some days a, a rant is what you really need to do to get out of bed. Um, well, there's a piece in a Bloomberg article about um, sustainability and and the stimulus or recovery or whatever this uh, two trillion dollar thing is is called. Um, and there was a quote from uh, an or, uh, co-founder of an organization called the Breakthrough Institute, which let's just say has uh, made a pretty good career out of being gadflies in the environmental movement, or, uh, claiming to be environmentalists, and I think they, they are, but arguing in favor of nuclear power, natural gas, and against putting a price on carbon emissions and things like that. And uh, talked about the fact that this is not the time to be talking about climate change or demanding climate policy because people are hurting economically. And, you know, it's just struck me as another one of those things. We hear this all the time when there's a mass shooting. It's not the right time to talk about gun control. When there's a hurricane that's maybe exacerbated by climate change. It's the wrong time to talk about that and so on. And I just said, you know, no this is exactly the right time to be talking about climate change. And you said it a minute ago uh, about the airlines, you know, for example, you know, well, if we're going to invest in the airlines and save them, bail them out of this moment, why not ensure that the aviation sector does what every other industry is doing by aiming for net zero emissions by mid-century, baking that into one of the conditions for getting these uh, billions and billions of dollars, I think close to 50 billion, maybe, you know, it, we're bailing out farmers and, and agricultural companies, food companies. Shouldn't we require them to 
adopt climate and agricultural friendly techniques and technologies that are both uh, you know good for sequestering carbon at the same time that they enhance the soil and and create more food on less land and so on you know we know that keeping fossil fuels in the ground is something we just have to do uh, but we're bailing out the oil and gas industry and not trying to create an orderly transition away from fossil fuels so you know if we're going to invest trillions of dollars from the taxpayers if we have this chance to rebuild the economy why would we want to rescue and lock in the unsustainable systems and industries for i don't know another generation or two so that's that's what it was about and it, you know somebody on twitter said well joel doesn't have many solutions here well it wasn't about solutions there's plenty of those out there we have solutions as 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 long as the day is long uh, it's just having a conversation um uh, that we're not having about how do we want to invest this money in this moment, this perilous moment, and rescue our economy while also creating a huge opportunity for people and the planet. Yeah, and you just made one point that I want to amplify, and it's the it's time to have this conversation. So I think that's part of the the point of this article is is a lot of people in the sustainability community are I think are kind of holding back right now they're quiet um, and for rightly so like we have some we have emergency situation we have to deal with people need to make sure their their employees are okay their families are okay their 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 communities and so forth i get that i get that that we need to focus on that but there's been sort of this radio silence from a lot of the companies that that i've been reaching out to to find out hey you okay? Are we all systems ahead? How, is this going to change your strategy? You know, what's up with, you know, and I've been I'm respectfully asking how people are and, and trying to see what's going on. And, and folks are awful quiet. Yet, you know, it's not the time to be quiet. I mean, this just in the past week, we've seen the current administration decide they're not going to uh, enforce environmental protection laws. They're using this as a way to, to step back from their responsibility even more. And OPS oh, this week, in a week when we've seen the impact and the positive, you know, again, a positive thing that's happened, emissions way off, pollution way off in different cities around the, the United States and around the world. And this is the week that the Trump administration pulls back fuel efficiency standards. I mean, the people that are denying the climate crisis have no tr trouble speaking up and doing things right now. We on the side of fighting the climate crisis need to speak up. Last week, we discussed the implications of the coronavirus epidemic on the clean economy with four members of the Green Biz Analyst team. This week, let's turn to the impact of the pandemic on the role of a sustainability executive inside a big company. Joining me now are Cynthia Curtis, Senior Vice President of Sustainability at JLL, formerly Jones Lang LaSalle, which specializes in commercial real estate services, Jeff Senate responsible business leader at PwC, and our own John Davies, vice president and senior analyst at GreenBiz Group, who also runs the GreenBiz Executive Network, our membership group of sustainability executives from large companies. Cynthia, let's start with you. Other than I presume working from home, what's been the biggest change in your job and, at, and in sustainability at your company over the past couple of weeks? 
Um, well, hey, Joel, uh, great to hear your voice uh, as usual and to uh, join GreenBiz during these trying, challenging, unsettling, pick your adjective time. And um, so, yeah, we've, there's been certainly some change. We've, we have been working from home, uh, like everybody, um, as have our clients, which is driving quite a bit of change in, in our business. But, you know, first and foremost, I would say probably like all others, the focus has been on our employees and how we can prop each other up and be supportive of each other. But equally, the next step is how do we, how do, we do that for our clients? And um, what are the things that they're concerned about and how can we help them um, in this, this time? So, you know, an example is um, what we've done with, um, with Delta. We had a number of our Atlanta-based folks work with Delta to stand up essentially a reservation call center in what was formerly an on-campus museum and an airplane hangar. So things like that that we've done in no time, we've stood up uh, what's essentially a triage hospital in the in the UK in like 10 days. So those are the types of things that we're doing directly with our clients. But in in kind of my world where we're health and well-being has been an area of focus and, and growing interest for easily the last year. We held a webinar, a global webinar last night with Dr. Joe Allen from the Harvard School of Public Health, who is doing some tremendously important work on the relationship of healthy buildings and healthy occupants and the resulting improved productivity. And JLO has been a sponsor of, of that work. And he, he got on the horn with um, our, there were, we had probably 150 folks on this call last night globally and kind of took us through uh, from a science standpoint, what's happening, what do we need to be thinking about um, in terms of buildings as a line of defense, which is kind of a different approach to resiliency. But that thought of healthy buildings equal healthy employees and health, healthy occupants. And when we, when we kind of start to come out of this, what are the things we need to be thinking about when you have an empty building for, you know, potentially a month or two, you know, you got you to take some steps so that it's healthy when employees come back in. So helping uh, take us through from a fact-based, science-based perspective, what are the things that we need to be considering, not only for our own operations and our own offices, but for our clients? Those are the types of things that have actually been uh, a, a growing focus um, in these days and are of particular help to our folks. Yeah, well, can you give a quick example of something that will be different that you need to be doing with the building coming out of the, uh, the sheltering in place? Sure. So um, one is that the whole ventilation system, you got to really be blowing that out. And, and as he said, you know, if you've got to spend a little bit more energy and really crank up the ventilation system, making sure that you've got the appropriate and maybe a higher level of filtration system in place, if you need to be using more energy and, and spend more money in the short term to crank that up, you need to do that. You need to run it through um, for uh, for several days. Of course, we all hope that that energy would be renewable, but that is an example of you effectively have to clean out that the HVAC 
Yeah. So Jeff, how about at PwC? What's been the change and what, what are you looking at now that you may not have been looking at uh, a few weeks ago? Yeah. Thanks, Joel. Great to be with you. I think some of the interesting things from a sustainability standpoint are at the intersection of you know social and environmental. So as we've gone to this shelter in place and we've closed our offices, we acted early um, to get people off the planes and out of the offices and at home. And we we're lucky because we've really spent a lot of time and energy on the technology infrastructure of the firm over the past years, as well as the digital acumen of our staff. Uh, We have a commitment to that, a $3 billion investment uh, around the globe in digital upskilling for ourselves, our clients, and in the community. And that has really served us well because we were able to move, I won't say seamlessly, but um, certainly everybody had their own challenges. But I think we've moved to this virtual reality Uh, or virtual connectivity, as we're doing today, quite well. So that has been a bright spot of this. And from a sustainability standpoint, I wonder about the stickiness of that. Like, has this changed uh, the way business is is done in America in a way that's going to have some lasting stickiness, which which would be really interesting from a sustainability perspective. Uh, So are you talking about uh, maybe telework uh, catching on finally or or some other kinds of changes? What are you referring to? Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, As you know, the business community is essentially grounded. What does business as usual look like uh, when when the economy and, and marketplace opens up again? And have we reached a level of maturity across the business landscape that with this kind of virtual connectivity that some amount, there's there's never going to be uh, a replacement. I, I think there's always going to be a call for travel of some sort in businesses like ours. But does that return to the same as it was, you know, even just months ago? Um, I doubt it. I, I think, uh, you know, you hear from our staff and, and others like, those of us on on this podcast um, of the the difficulties of travel, and if there are other alternatives, not to eliminate it, I don't think that's going to happen, um, and in some ways, nor should it. Uh, but to provide healthy alternatives, I think would be really would be really great from a, a health perspective, a health and wellness perspective, as well as as an environmental sustainability perspective. And if we can do that at the same levels of excellence that we're known for now, um, all the better. John Davies, I know you've been in touch with dozens of corporate sustainability professionals over the past month and hosting a weekly virtual happy hour that's convening a number of them. What's your assessment so far of the impact of the pandemic on the profession of sustainability? Well, you know, for all the people with uh, kids at home, I'd say that it's this is brought to you by the letter S. I think a lot of sustainability people came out of VHS and have safety underneath their uh, remit. And I've talked to a number of people who have really just gone all in on their role in leading safety around you know, uh, changing practices in factories so that there's physical distancing, uh, deciding you know, where to deploy resources. So I think that's one, one area. And then the S in ESG, I think, somewhat to what Jeff was talking about and he and I have talked about in the past that there's going to be a greater focus on social when 
we come out of this from the, you know, we, we start to see with our Green Fence Summit that you hosted and things like that, a, a rise in interest in ESG among uh, financial community. And I think the S is going to get even more of a spotlight shown on it. And then the one thing you did refer to that has been really fun, we started last week, was a, a Green Biz Executive Network happy hour. And that really came from my talking to Cynthia and Jeff and about a half dozen other executives to find out what they were doing. And they were all having check-in calls with their team, not focused on a particular goal or, or initiative, but just a, a health and wellness checkup to say, how are you doing? How are things? Are you, are you all right? Is there anything that you need? And so we have started that as well. And I would say that's probably something I'd recommend to anybody's uh, sustainability team. Or anybody's team, period. So it sounds like, and I'd love to hear each of your thoughts, starting with you, Cynthia, that the coronavirus, the sheltering in place, social distancing, hasn't upended the, the job. It's actually, in some ways, made it more important and caused, uh, I think, a lot of you to exercise some, some new muscles. Is that the scene? Do you see that the role of a sustainability executive in a, in a large company maybe has, a, has been elevated as a result of this? Well, you know, it, it's interesting, Joel, if you look at the last, you know, significant downturn we had and whatever, 2008-ish timeframe, for many of us at that time, it set us back in terms of our ability to get um, the attention of, uh, you know, the executive team or to move forward on on any kind of significant goals. The sense was this is just going to cost us money, et cetera, et cetera. I think what we're seeing here is an example of just how far we've come as as a profession and in our push to be more embedded in the business. We are, and I know that Jeff is, could say the same thing, we are well down the path of, of um, embedding sustainability and sustainability considerations throughout our business. And ESG um, with, as, an, as an area of, of interest and import from our shareholder investor community has never been stronger. So there isn't a going back. There isn't the backsliding. You know, we're focused more now, obviously, on what this means for our clients, what this means for our business. Um, All of us are. But sustainability has a way now and we're at the table. And and I think the the social aspects that Jeff was talking about and and John referenced, you know, we're involved in that as well. Um, And people are looking to us more so than um, than we certainly have seen in the past. Jeff Sandy, do you agree? I couldn't agree more. We've had longstanding relationships with nonprofits in the education, food security, and healthcare space that couldn't be more important today, and in a, in a, a wide variety of ways. So we have a $320 million youth education commitment we call Access Your Potential. And Part of that has been virtual volunteering. We've spent the last couple of years working on how to stand up virtual volunteering and develop the relationships with nonprofit partners to uh, <clears throat> provide those opportunities for our staff. That is paying huge dividends right now. Our work in the education space is helping our staff who are 
as John alluded to, now part-time staff and part-time, you know, homeschool teacher um, in many cases. And those those uh, relationships have really borne fruit. The, the work we've we've worked with Feeding America for years and just made a large grant to them recently and have done a lot of pro bono work with them and direct relief and others that have really been hugely important to us. Um, because this is not unlike in some ways uh, a hurricane, except that it's a hurricane that lasts for an indeterminate period of time and affects the entire nation at the same time. And that might be a terrible analogy but from a, a sustainability or, or corporate responsibility standpoint. It's, it's many of the same uh, methods by which you, you invest the firm's resources and look to solve the problem. Um, because hurricanes can shut down an entire region in the in the same way that this is happening. And so, how do you how do you contribute to being part of the solution in those? And some businesses, it's easier than others. Um, and for us, that's a deployment of our capital and our human capital. And uh, I'm I'm really um, pleased with what we've been able to do. But I think to Cynthia's point, like I don't think our role has ever been as important as it is today. And I think that is likely to continue. And the professionalization of the work that we all do is really making an important difference. John Davies, I know it's early days still, but what's your prognostication of how all of this could impact the uh, role and responsibilities of a sustainability executive inside companies as we come out of this? I think Jeff and Cynthia both have this right. If you've embedded sustainability, that, re- that means that you've been investing in it and you've been making a business decision to do this, right? So I think just like you see companies who have strong balance sheets are going to probably come out of this okay. I think there's a sustainability balance sheet that if you've been investing and embedding this, you're probably going to come out all right in teams. But I think one area where I'm a little bit concerned is more around what the impact will be on a number of the NGOs, especially the ENGOs, because so much of their work actually complements what uh, companies are doing. And, and if those start going away, I think there will be an impact on how much the, the corporate sustainability folks can get things done. Yeah, that's uh, complementing and also in some cases driving the work of of many companies in in sustainability. Well, we're going to want to check back with you and some of your colleagues in the coming weeks to learn more about the impact of the pandemic on the profession of sustainability. For now, thanks to Cynthia Curtis and Jeff Senny, who drive sustainability and corporate responsibility at JLL and PwC, respectively, and John Davies, Senior Analyst at Green Biz Group also runs the Green Biz Executive Network. Uh, Thanks a lot and uh, stay safe out there. Thank you, Joel. Thanks, Joel. Thanks, Joel. Almost $20 billion flowed into food-related innovation, both information technology and biotechnology, during 2019. That's according to the latest Ag Funder report published in late February. And it covers many ingredients, everything from farm robotics to e-grocers to alternative foods. 
One of the most fertile categories within this big menu is agricultural biotechnology, particularly alternatives for plant and animal health. Just last week, for example, alternative protein company Nature's Find scored $80 million from several investors and led by the climate tech funds backed by former Vice President Al Gore and Microsoft co-founder Bill Gates. Nature's Find is developing food made using the fermentation behaviors of the microbes that live in the acidic hot springs of Yellowstone National Park. The ag biotech niche covers everything from non-chemical fertilizers to gene-based pesticides to biome-enhancing livestock feed and other nutrient approaches for both flora and fauna and, hey, fish too. According to separate research published this week by venture development firm TechXL, investments in plant and animal biotech doubled from 2017 to $6.9 billion at the end of last year. I spoke with the firm's vice president of business development, Mike Rolfson, about the fundamentals driving those investments, how the coronavirus pandemic might affect progress in 2020, and why animal feed and aquaculture startups are particularly hot. Here's Rolfson responding to my question about whether the coronavirus situation could slow down startups in this space. Yeah, well, the, the obvious answer is we're going to see the sort of typical disruption that affects investment. Um, and uh, so, yes, there are uh, there's going to be, uh, I'm sure, a slowdown related to, to other, other forms of, of economic activity and investment activity in, in the agriculture sector. Um, there's, there's nothing particularly bullish about what's going on today. In that, and and the other thing we're seeing is uh, for folks like ourselves who not only invest but also do a tremendous amount of scientific advancement, and 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 with that we lean on our own research capacities or capacities of our research partners, whether they be universities or, or peer play research organizations. Um, you know, if 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 the university shut down, well, guess what? You're not going to have the ability to do the test that you thought you were going to do, or or things are just on hold, or 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 whatever. So, and we're 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 going to start to bump up against crop cycles here too, right? So when when you are, you know, there there's often stages of testing materials. So you start in the lab, and then maybe you go to the greenhouse. But now it's time to go out to the field, and you know, logic logic to say that you know. In the in the in the growing season is the only time you can do this. So there's going to probably be a little bit of disruption in in the preparation for that because you just won't make it in time when you wanted to test for that particular crop or test against uh, the typical times when say like a, a certain pest is, is 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 out there and and doing its usual thing at the usual time of year. And there's a risk that you miss some of that. Now there's there's ways around that too because. Uh, in the in the fluid global world of testing these things, you know you can you can do southern hemispheric work when when it's our winter and their summer. So so that part isn't lost. But yeah, there's going to be some to kind of circle back to the overall answer. There's going to be financial disruption uh, that that typically happens in in times like this, but also a little bit of you know infrastructure uh, support disruption that that's lost by again the fact that people simply aren't their desks or they aren't the lab or the production facility that was going to make your material to then be tested is just simply not working. So there's a little bit of that going on as well. Short-term concerns aside, Wolfson and I also chatted about how the interest in alternative proteins and regenerative agriculture is permeating innovation in animal health products, notably feed. Here are his thoughts on the primary market drivers. I think when when we look at uh, feed specifically, I think a lot of that 
is is part of this overall story that really starts with protein and then works its way down through 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 the, the supply chain. You know, there's been if you look at the 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 most impactful part of of our diet and 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 the 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 process you have to go through to get to to proteins, whether they be animal or plant, especially on the animal side, a, a significant amount of inputs are required to get to that finished product. You know, it's, it's usually, you know, two, three, four X, five X in some cases of inputs in order to create one finished piece of, of, of output, you know, especially across the, the, the meat and fish spectrum. It depends on kind of animal by animal. So um, when, when people get concerned longer term about, uh, our ability to, to feed ourselves in a way we want to and with, you know, the, the, the growing purchasing power of a lot of people around the world, they, the, the, the step change in their diet is, is often away from things that are a little bit more green and starch uh, to, to things that are, that are of, of higher value and more protein oriented. So it's not a very linear function. It actually goes up more than that because you know step you create a step function of sorts in in terms of the need to get to those finished products as people's diets change so um when, when you look at the, all the work that's been done in, in in alternative proteins especially going up to the consumer side with uh you know the beyond meats of the world and, and things like that i think that was a lot of this this other parallel ca- catalyst um in terms of finding uh not just uh, the technology to, to make it and make it taste better and make it perform in a way that uh, the consumer wants it to taste or, or, or the people preparing it, you know, are, are used to, to utilizing it in a way similar to, to meat, but also the, uh, the, you know, how do you grow all this, this new things or what types of mixes of, of new sorts of more vegetable based protein is, is most resource friendly, most, agronomic friendly, most, uh, application friendly, you know, that, that, that creates the taste and texture that, that, that the ultimate consumer package good company wants to market to, to people. So I think all that dynamism, you know, the, the, the changing tastes and the, and the opportunities and, and alternative proteins to the consumer, as well as really the, the, the ongoing concern, um, about, uh, the, the components of, global agriculture production that that are that need to continue to to become more efficient it all sort of goes back to protein and and its relation to both feeding animals and feeding people so i think that was a lot of the 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 that driver and and certainly we saw a tremendous amount of it right in our face with with beyond meat going public and and the value that the the, the world put on that business as well as a lot of the, the similar businesses around it that that continue to grow and continue to uh, uh, create buzz in the space. So, um, yeah, I, I think that was the main driver, and uh, and you know we'll see where the the plant based piece goes. But I, I think you know especially in the developed world where our diet is, is settled in, in in many ways in terms of the mix of of things we eat every day, you're going to have a growing consumer wanting alternatives that are perhaps a little more healthy. Um, and, and, and with that, you're going to see a lot of, of technology being put into alternative ways to, to grow vegetable-based proteins that you know, start from technology on the agronomic side, out in the field, all the way up to, to how you, you put it in a finished product. So that's still very dynamic and, and will, will be a good place for investment for a long time. As a pescatarian, I was particularly intrigued by Rolfson's thoughts about aquaculture. 
The final highlight I'll play from our interview are his thoughts about the potential for innovation in this sector. Well, it's if you look at the major segments of agriculture in a traditional sense, they're, they're, they're slow and steady and there's not a lot of disproportionate growth. Well, really since since its inception, aquaculture has been growing disproportionately, and uh, that is, remains the case today. It's certainly it's 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 had its moments where it went from incredibly uh, atypical growth to much of the rest of ag to to still significantly higher growth because we've we've maxed out the wild catch in, in, in oceans, and and that's probably never going to change all that much. And and going back to my my prior point about uh, you know, people are, are not going to stop eating these forms of proteins. And if you look at, and not so much from an American perspective, but if you look at a lot of the rest of the world, they get significant amount of their animal protein, you know, from, from fish-based and, and related. So yeah, you're going to continue to incentivize people to figure out new technologies around that. And then you have the other piece that I think it is differentiated. So we, we talked there about kind of just the dynamics of growth, but within that, the, the especially within certain higher value species, you know, you're 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 attempting to put them in a captive uh, space that's very atypical to what they um, how they typically live. You know, putting putting terrestrial animals on land and and raising them that's what they do. That's you know, they they they, they you're not you're not really changing their their living space all that much. Um, if if you, you want to kind of get uh, just kind of describe it in a general sense, but when you're when you're attempting to put sort of an open ocean uh, salmonid like you know like like the, the salmon we eat. And you're putting them in a cage. Uh, granted, it's a sizable cage, and it's, you know they can move about to a degree, but it's not it's not uh, very typical to the way they live. Or if you're putting shrimp in a recirculating pond, you're creating a significant need to maintain their health, clean the water, uh, uh, cr- keep the oxygen levels high. That again uh, require a lot more technology and infrastructure than just simply having a an open pasture and letting cows run about and graze. So. Those are some of the things that, that 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 why there's just such a disproportionate focus on agriculture or aquaculture technology. And uh, and then I guess the last part is too you're you're attempting to replicate a, a relatively complex diet in a lot of these animals. I think we talked about this in our in our prior discussion. And in, in going back to the case of salmon, is really one of the few pure play carnivores that are fed in captivity. So so you you. You're, you know, they're, they're used to eating fish and, and, and the things that come explicitly from fish. So to, to try to introduce alternative ingredients that, that maybe one for one had the same protein or one for one had the same fats. Um, but if you look at the specifics within those fats or the specifics within those proteins, you have things that are extremely um, foreign to their diet. So uh, you, you, you do create, it, it just doesn't create as uh flexible a ground as it is for feeding, you know, pigs and chickens and cows. You can, you can alternate lots of different ingredients that often do the same thing. And it's all relative to price. Whereas in the case of salmon, you know, you, you just simply can't do that because their bodies uh, don't handle that very well. And the fish do not perform very well. So uh, it, it creates a lot more complexity and a lot more ground for innovation.
And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350. You'll find more about the organization, the stories and events we mentioned in this episode. While you're there, check out our six free e-newsletters. Go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters and find out more about them. Also a friendly reminder, today, April 3rd, is the last day to nominate someone for our 2020 class of GreenBiz 30 Under 30. Go to greenbiz.com or look in the article for this week's podcast for the link. As always, we love to hear from you. You can email us at 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until next time, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Stay home and stay safe. And as always, thanks so much for tuning in.